hope, aspiration, connection, belonging, culture. These are the stories we tell. Join me as I speak to storytellers from across the world and hear about what inspires them to create the reality they want to live in. Today, I had the opportunity of speaking with Terence Michael, who goes under the handle Proof of Money on Twitter. Terence is an Emmy-nominated film and TV producer and an entrepreneur. We talked about the seven different types of story you could tell in film and realized that our journey to Bitcoin could quite possibly be a hero's journey as well. Terence, welcome to the stories we tell. You're the second guest. It's a pleasure to have you on. Awesome. Thanks, Avi. Excited to be here. Yeah. So, we, you know, Terence, we met for the first time at Pacific Bitcoin uh, earlier this year, uh, early October uh, of this year. And then, you know, we've talked a couple of times before that, uh, especially around the topic of stories, right, and how you can draw people in to any culture or community through storytelling. And in that vein, right, you are uh, a serial film producer and, t and film and TV producer, right? You have 20, you produced 20 films, over 30 uh, TV series. Of them, which would you say is the highlight for you? Um, I don't know that there's a specific one, but it's, it, you know, in general, I think the highlight has been that you know, there's really only like five to seven stories that we really tell. And we're just always telling them over and over again and in different ways to reach different people. And, you know, we all identify with different TV shows or movies because we see ourselves in them, right? It's, you know, a, a movie or a TV show that um, has characters that you can't identify or have a struggle that isn't accessible to you. Um, is never going to work. You, you know, you walk out of a movie and you're like, I don't know, it just, it just, it wasn't my thing. And it's like, well, because it wasn't relatable and you didn't care about the struggle, the obstacles weren't real. And so I think when people can see their own hero's journey in something, um, they connect. And so the highlight for me has been learning that that's what it's all about, that it's about the hero's journey, that it's about um, telling stories that motivate others that, you know, it's okay to, to find a mentor. It's okay that you have obstacles. It's okay that you're reticent. You know, you need uh, help. You want the struggle. You know, it's, it's not fulfilling to get where you want to do, whatever you're trying to build, whatever you're trying to create and publish and push out there. It's not going to be fulfilling without the ups and downs uh, and without the, the struggle to get there. So that doesn't really answer your question, but it, in general, that's what has helped me because moving from film to TV, like once I got into TV, because I I did a and do a lot of uns, what we call unscripted television, we're trying to pull um, those stories out of real people and in real situations, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's for me, that's been the biggest takeaway and the biggest inspiration is um, telling the human story over and over again, but in, in a way that uh, people can connect with, right? We've been doing it ever since we've been sitting around the fire 
and, you know, cavemen, you know, drawing on walls. Like it's all the same. We all want something. There's something in our way. How are we going to get it? How are we going to improve ourselves to get it? What are we going to learn from that adventure? How are we going to transform for the better and, you know, bring that back to our own world? Yeah. I, so that, that's super interesting, Terrence. Uh, you'd, um, you mentioned there's seven broad themes around which stories are told, right, in, in general. Uh, are they all different versions of the hero's journey or is there something other than the hero's journey? No, I mean, so my argument is that every story has to be the hero's journey. It it could have a little bit of color, a little bit of flavor, sometimes uh you can start to reverse some of those steps or start to slightly change them, but you really need to stick to them because that's how, that's how our brains are are wired for story. Um, and I don't have the seven, you know, in front of me or on the top of my head, but meaning like there could be, you know, the, the boy meets girl, there could be the quest, there could be, you know, conquering um, another world, there could be the voyage. It's but they all come down to, you know, a journey or a search or, um, you know, I think David Mamet uh, said, uh, he simplified it once and he said, you know, every single, every single story you see in cinema is two people sitting in a car and they're traveling from like, let's say the West Coast to the East Coast. And one person wants something, but the other person is getting in the way and the other person wants something and that person's getting in the way. And they're just talking, but meanwhile, they're going from A to B. And that's really what it is. If you break it down, like the format, like every movie is really just two talking heads. It's just two people. You know, you can add people, of course, but then as the budgets get bigger, you, the sets get bigger. Now they're suddenly in a, in a huge baseball field. Now they're on a plane that's going down or a ship across the seas or, you know, um, asteroids are flying above them. But it always comes down to the character, you know, who is this person and what, what do they want? Um, so yeah, they really all come down to, so for people that know the, the hero's journey, um, which I think most people are familiar with, at least in general, um, that's really where it all works. I mean, even, even George Lucas said, he's like, his words, he's like, I just ripped off the hero's journey when I wrote Star Wars. Like, that's all it is, you know, and we know whether it's, you know, the Wizard of Oz or, um, you know, it's everything is the hero's journey. And is this the, the, uh, the hero's journey, all these seven broad themes, is this something that's taught in film school or um, is it something that as a filmmaker, you, you just have this natural uh, understanding of it, right? Because it is an age old tradition these broad themes for storytelling. Do you just take that with you? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, so when, when the hero's journey was written, um, it wasn't even applied to Hollywood in the early days. Hollywood was doing it, but they didn't know why. And there was a development executive at Walt Disney who realized he, he started analyzing movies and he realized that, the movies that were working closely followed the hero's journey and the ones that didn't, didn't. And this wasn't super long ago. I mean, I think this probably was in the 80s somewhere, right? So at that point, this executive said to everybody, guys, we, our movies need to follow the hero's journey. Here are the steps as we're developing projects and concepts. Let's, let's look at this. 
And, and he was right. Never since people have sort of paid attention because, you know, originally when it was a book, um, uh, I forget what it was. It was like, uh, I mean, it was a Joseph Campbell book, but I, but it wasn't, it wasn't really, I don't even think it was called the hero's journey. I could be wrong, but we sort of adopted that and created it as that. Um, and it's true. Look at your favorite movies and look at the movies that you didn't like and go down those 12 steps and you'll be like, you will realize, oh, it's, it's missing something. It's missing something critical. Um, yeah. And do you think the movies that fail, they just haven't followed the template or even, or is it possible that a movie could fail having tried its best to follow this 12 step process through via these seven themes? So, yeah, I mean, it sounds funny because it's like, you know, we know movies are art and everything is so subjective. Um, and there are a, a myriad of reasons why films can fail. And, you know, Hollywood and Hollywood adjacent, there's lots of companies. Um, I'm actually even part of one of them that has tried to algorithmically figure out why movies are failing. You know, we punch in a bunch of data. Uh, we look at Rotten Tomato scores. We take all the readers and, and, and analysts, um, their scores, you know, is, is it the pacing this off? Is it the structure? Is, is there a character that we don't identify with or care about? And yet in some, it really is as simple as not following the hero's journey. It, it is as simple as that. Now it still has to be compelling and, you know, the acting has to be good and, you know, you have to be engaged and, um, you know, there's also like the three E's, um, in Hollywood where it's like you're, if you're missing one of these three E's, your film also fails, right? So this is just sort of a, a layer on top of the hero story. And that's that one, it has to be entertaining. And that's what a lot of filmmakers miss, you know, and I forget who said this, it was like Samuel Goldwyn or, um, Cecil B. DeMille. It, it was, it was one of the old time Hollywood people said, look, if you want to send a message, you know, you send a telegram, something like that. Like, don't use your film for that. So, that's the first place that people miss it. They they want to tell this special message. They they want to get something out, and and we see this happen all the time. If a, if a movie's too woke or it's too whatever, um, so one it has to be entertaining. Absolutely, you know we're there to escape. We want some popcorn, and for two hours I want to forget my troubles. Um, two, it has to be engaging, and that's usually where the hero's journey comes in. If it's not engaging. If if you start to look at the clock or you start to be aware of how long a scene is, you know, you get pulled out of the scene, um, the story's gonna lose you. And then three, this and this is what makes a movie special, and sometimes this is where it fails or not. Beyond that, it needs to be enlightening. It really needs to reflect something in you. You you you're walking away from that thinking to yourself, yeah, I should be pursuing my passion. I do have skills that could do this. I do need to, you know, get off the treadmill and out of the rat race of this job that I hate, um, you know, because all these movies are inspiring. That's kind of what they're all about, right? It's it, it's the person that doesn't like their job, is in a bad relationship, wants something better, you know, wants more money, um, wants to improve their situation. That's really what every movie is. How do we improve our situation? Um, so I, I don't even know if I answered your question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I, that was great. Uh, now, if I had to guess, uh, Terrence, I mean, you're talking about these broad themes, uh, right? These, these stories that that uh, take the viewer themselves on a journey, right? Or, the, or if, if you're talking about books, the reader. 
as well, right? I'm sure the same applies. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, plays, musicals, anything. Right. Uh, so that said, uh, it sounds to me that these broader and easier to relate to themes apply more to movies or books with a mass appeal. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But but you also have uh, situations uh, like cult movies, right? Or really niche movies. Now, I went through, I bring this up because I went through a phase in my early 20s when I watched a lot of quote-unquote, and, and fell in love with a lot of quote-unquote anti-films, if you will. So the French New Wave, go, especially guys like Godard, right? Mm. Uh, and then even to an extent, uh, moving uh, just across the border, Fellini with movies like Eight and a Half, which is really an anti-film in, in some sense, mm -hmm. uh, more than it was a film. Uh, sure. And then you, you move a little further down the timeline, you have folks like David Lynch, right? Ripping up the the script and and even more niche guys like the, the I don't know if you know the Chilean filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yeah, uh, he used to make a lot of surrealist anti-films. Okay. Uh, that ripped off the script. So but but those films do have this cult appeal, right? So what do you think differentiates or, or what draws that cult in, if you will, into those stories versus the mass appeal that that you talked about for the standard stories? I mean, I think uh, people that appreciate art and people that sort of uh, protest, uh, you know, convention, um, people that are looking for something different um, gravitate towards those. I've, you know, I've been to a gazillion film festivals and have seen a lot of this experimental work and most of it is very difficult to get through. It's like, going to a one-man play and the actor's not very good. Um, but from that, yeah, you can get magical and amazing stuff. You, you know, you discover people like Christopher Nolan, you know, who did Memento. You discover uh, Soderbergh who did Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, when they had their films at film festivals and you discover, you know, Tarantino and, these people all went against convention because they were into very obscure things, but they also wanted to, you know, eventually reach an audience. So if you look at their current films, you know, they all follow the hero's journey. Um, so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of this, right? It really is. It, it's an art form. You can, you can do whatever you want, but you know, the public sort of does. Um, the public, in a sense, is the vote of confidence. I mean, as far as you – if you care about the commercialism of it, if you do want to reach audiences, you know, like for me, like, you know, a lot of films that I did were um, – starting out were, you know, film festival-type movies. And, you know, they were the smaller $1 to $3 million independent movies. And even though they got distributed by major studios, it they didn't have mass audiences and – uh, because they, even though they followed the hero's journey, they were more on the cusp of being more creative, which you often have to do when you don't have as big of a budget. You're like, you know, how can we be more creative? And that's kind of why, like, for instance, I went into television because after a while, I just started to get burnt out. Like, okay, it's great, but, you know, I'm spending two, three years on this one story, this one film, and then how many people at the end of the day actually saw it? Like, how, you know, it, how many, you know, because... I don't consider myself like an artist, like I like, oh, I don't care if just two people see it, like, you know, it's art, it's great. It's like, I, I wanted it to get out there and be accessible. So 
that's kind of why I went into television because television, there really isn't an independent world. You just have to pitch your idea. You have to get the money up front from the networks and then you go make it. And so some of those TV shows, I'd say, well, they're not as good as the film and from an art perspective, but I was grateful to be able to reach so many people. You know, it's like when I can do a TV show and reach 18 million people in one episode, it's like, you know, holy crap, I, you know, my films aren't reaching 18 million people. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I feel like we all sort of start there. We, you know, when you come out of film school and you have that art perspective and you want to say something different and, um, and yeah, again, without money, you, you just have to get creative. Yeah, it is a, it is a tough balance to strike, right? You, you want to feed that creative beast within you, but at the yes. same time, you got, you got to keep the lights on somehow while you're doing it. Right, right. There you go. That's well said. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we'll tie this back to a topic that you and I both love. Uh, so for folks uh, who don't know Terrence, uh, he and I are part of a, of a dangerous counterculture cult uh, <laughs> that, that believes that the world can actually be a beautiful, harmonious, peaceful, loving and kind place uh, uh, if we move to a sound money standard. But we're just very, very toxic people. Terrence, I don't know. I don't know how anyone stuns us. Uh, so, with the view of drawing people into this into this world, right? This vision for this beautiful world, if for 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 us and future generations, mm -hmm. what kind of stories can we tell? I mean, are you talking about the Bitcoin world? The only one, my friend. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I feel there's a there's you know, there's several ways to bring people in. One, because it initially brought me in, is the mystery of Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator. Because even if you don't know a thing about Bitcoin or even care about Bitcoin, when you hear that there was this person who invented, you know, a, a, a whole new monetary system completely separate from the state and who essentially has billions of dollars. It, it's at some points in time, literally the richest person on earth, but didn't seek any accolades, has never revealed his face, um, just vanished, S said, here's a gift to everybody because for him to say, hey, here's an egalitarian system for everybody to save in. It's, it's, it's a system of truth and honor and completely opposite of what we, we've all grown up with and what we thought was money. He's going to give it to everyone as a gift, but then go away. And, you know, it's almost like the, 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 the parable, you know, or the story of Jesus, where it's like, you know, he came out and, you know, what did he give to everybody? And then he vanished. And, you know, he, you know, in a sense, he died, quote unquote, you know, died for our sins. It's like, did Satoshi, in a sense, quote unquote, die for our sins, you know, and depending if you want to uh, think about who Satoshi really is or not, you know, I mean, on one hand, he's all of us because he's given it to all of us. But, you know, Presumably, at least I believe, you know, he's no longer with us, which is what has also made it easier um, for no one to track him down and for him to come forward with, you know, and have billions and billions of dollars. Um, so I feel like the mystery of Satoshi is one 
great story that we can continue to tell. You know, who could it be? Could it be John Nash, you know, the, the beautiful mind, you know, the Russell Crowe character in The Beautiful Mind, you know, could it could it be a, a lone cryptographer in Northern California, you know, could it be some of the bigger names that we in the Bitcoin world know, but other people don't know. And, you know, we know that there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cryptographers over 40 years putting all these things together and Satoshi somehow figured out the puzzle. He didn't really invent anything. I mean, he did technically invent a couple things, but he really put together all these things, said, here you go, world. Here's a way for you to save value, preserve value, and protest peacefully from the state and the oppression of your fiat money. And poof, I'm, I've given it all to you. I'm going to go away. Um, unlike everything else we've ever known with innovative technologies and new asset classes, he took nothing for himself, you know, no investors, nothing. And um, that's just a, it's not only a beautiful thing. It's just, an, it's a crazy, like, I can't, I can't stop thinking about who this person is that did that and gave us this gift. Because even if it's the NSA or CIA, which some people say, when you look at the code and how it works, it doesn't matter. They still, they still can't do anything. Like whoever gave us the wheel, they can't come forward and take the wheel away from us. We've turned the wheel into whatever we want to. It's for everybody. We don't know who the inventor of the wheel is, but it's a tool. And we all get to use it um, in our own way. Good people will use it. Guess what? Bad people will use it. And you know that's okay. Bad people are going to use rope and duct tape and guns, and but they're also going to eat cereal and <laughs> wear belts and socks, right? Like it's it's they're tools for everyone. Um, yep. So that's one big story: the, the story of Satoshi. Is that is that a story? Well, we'll get back. I, I think you were about to go on to an, another story, but I just want to press on this one real quick. Sure. Is this a story you hope to tell one day, Terence, either through film or through TV? Yes, I I I want to tell it. Uh, absolutely, I want to tell the buildup of all of the people that could be Satoshi without identifying anyone. Like, let the viewer either decide or let the viewer realize in the end. It doesn't matter who it is because now it's all of us. Satoshi lives within all of us. But I think it's fascinating to highlight certain individuals that really moved uh, Bitcoin forward and got it to, to where it is um, when Bitcoin has adopted all of these, you know, six or seven major innovations. It's like, well, who are the people that that put together these six or seven innovations? And, 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 and then just in a mysterious way, that's fun. Um, where it's like, where was this person at this time? Who could have sent that email? Who who spoke like this? Um, you know, you, you you look at it at Satoshi's emails and you you see the phrasing and you see the language, and then there's timestamps and where was this? And wait, was this person a professor? He's now speaking like he's an academic, and um, so there's lots of things that uh, I think would be exciting. And then of course we know there's people that have come out and said they're Satoshi, which. Uh, Lots of people believe that that's not true because of um, because of fraud and <laughs> whatnot. Um, so, yeah, it, th that to me is the irony that the that the one person who's come out and said they're Satoshi basically is revealing principles and values of himself who are the opposite of Satoshi, which is how we know it's not Satoshi even without any facts. Satoshi wouldn't do that. He wouldn't reveal himself in that way, like, ha, 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 look at me, I'm Satoshi. Right. 
So going back to this idea, right, uh, of making this uh, this film or TV series on on Satoshi, is it is it still just in an idea, or have you put any more thought around it on how uh, you you'd go about producing something like this? Oh yeah, so I'm I'm developing a screenplay for sort of like a big uh, major film. That would sort of be like a Frost and Nixon or a um, mix with like the social network and maybe a little beautiful mind um, about the mystery of Satoshi, you know, um, that would focus on a reporter and a journalist who um, thinks they might know who Satoshi is. And in this movie, Satoshi, I'm going to put in quotes, might reveal himself and agree to an interview. But we don't know who that is or what that is. And meanwhile, the CIA and the NSA are after them and they want to capture Satoshi, but no one can find him or get to him, but he's revealing and giving information. I, I don't, I'm still putting it together, but I think that would be something great. So I'm trying to develop that. I'm also doing, working on some uh, larger sci-fi one that just is very conceptual because it would be ridiculously expensive, but also be amazing um, with Tomer Strolight, uh, who has an incredible idea. And then just recently, I've been trying to think of something that's much more accessible, uh, where there could be like a series of a series of interviews with Satoshi, and I put Satoshi in quotes because the interviewee would be behind like an anonymous mask, and we could put different people behind that mask, but speaking as if they're Satoshi and more just to sort of educate. Those would be more interstitial things just so that uh, normies out there who are still curious about Satoshi, but really don't know Bitcoin. Like we know Bitcoin. Um, they could learn about Bitcoin through different experts in Bitcoin talking about it, but talking about it as if they're Satoshi. So I'm just trying to think of creative ways with hooks to help get the message out there for people that want to learn. And how would projects like I mean, these? Are, all of these sound incredible, by the way, Terence. And I can't wait. And I hope that they see the light of day. And I believe they yeah. will. But how would you go about, or one? How would one go about raising funding for this type? Which is it's a fairly niche topic, right? I mean, it it means a lot to folks like us. Yeah. But how? how I mean, what? There are a couple of hundred thousand at at best, a million of us in, in the world. It, I mean, that's a stretch, right? Yeah. How, how would you raise funding for something like this? Well, so that's the challenge. But the, so at a, at a major film level, um, like the first two projects I talked about, the key is to not really make it about Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is in there. Bitcoin is part of the story, but they're just films. So just like, you know, my other 20 films, it's just here's the film. We fully developed it. And now we go to the studios and, you know, we raise the money and partial studio funding, partial foreign financing, um, partial bank loans. Um, you know, we just cobble it together kind of, you know, like we always do. Um, for the smaller version, that would probably just be self-funded um, and potentially like a sponsor, I, you know, because that would just be shared on the Internet and whatnot. And I don't know that that's that one's to make money. That's just more educational, philanthropic. Got it. Yeah, well, like I said, I'm looking forward to uh, all three of the, uh, of, uh, I think you mentioned three. Yeah, uh, I hope. <laughs> yeah, so certainly looking forward to that. So now let's take a step back, Terrence. You were talking about, so this was the first theme, right? The story of Satoshi. 
yes. uh, is, is one way in which we draw people in, especially to your point, I completely agree with, right? Which is you don't make the movies explicitly about Bitcoin. It's there. It's, it's part of the film, but, yes. it, but they're films. Um, so that's one way. What's one story, right? What, what was the other story? If, if you were going to talk about another one. Well, I mean, on one hand, I think, you know, movies like uh, The Big Short or The Matrix, which us Bitcoiners, you know, reference a lot and understand. I think those are helpful because they help people see the problem. They help people see that that we're not awake or aware of what's going on. And, you know, like me, even, you know, I, I went to business school. I, I've studied money and finance and economics, and I actually didn't go to film school. I learned it after I graduated. Um, because I'm like, well, I, I got, I want to have a business, but I don't want to sell vacuum cleaners. So I went into Hollywood and um, started raising money. But um, so I think those kinds of movies are super helpful, you know, focusing on the financial crisis. I mean, I know there's going to be a movie, you know, for instance, on FTX. I don't know how accurate that be or, you know, but maybe that's helpful that might be just too crypto centric as opposed to Bitcoin, uh, meaning it might be focused too much on on scams and and VCs and and things like that that really have nothing to do with Bitcoin, which is just a fair commodity, a bearer asset for everyone. But it helps get that story out there. I know the Bitcoin billionaires is now being made into a movie, which you know focuses on the Winklevi twins and when they discovered Bitcoin, and this is essentially the sequel to the Social Network. It's Ben Mesrick who wrote the same book, and I think this is helpful because the, everyone knows the Winklevi for, because of the social network, and here is how they sort of got back at Zuckerberg. Uh, so rather than just like focusing on some you know romantic comedy or just some random thriller that comes across my desk, it's like it would be nice to to focus on on things that highlight how money has sort of disenfranchised people, how it has oppressed people, how it prevents us from having clear signals, you know, of human action. And, you know, we can honor our preferences and choices with a more pure money because we can, you know, focus on our, our jobs and our careers and not have to have second jobs or careers uh, simply to preserve our first jobs or careers because our money is being debased and devalued um, and diluted so much. So so aside from like, you know, Satoshi, uh, if there are movies that are just there highlighting the problem, because, you know, as we Bitcoiners know, the biggest problem w with understanding Bitcoin is that people don't understand what money is. So if we can do mo movies that just really highlight what money is, what our money is, don't even have to mention the word Bitcoin. I feel like that's that's a move in the right direction. You know, and then within the Bitcoin ecosphere, and this might be too uh, granular for um, this podcast or, or where you want to go, but within the Bitcoin ecosystem, I think there are ways for us ourselves to tell better stories to um, – educate others on Bitcoin, you know, what we call orange peeling. I think, I think some people don't educate others with Bitcoin the best way. They either just get angry or they just start yelling at them and, you know, they know too much. And so 
they forget how they learned. You know, we all had to learn in these steps and it, it all took us getting wrecked and buying the wrong coins and thinking that it was just all a tech stock before we realized that, oh, this is so much more um, than, than a stock. Yeah. And agreed, Darren. I've been there, been through the same journey. Yeah, that was sure. our hero's yeah. journey, right? <laughs> right. No, big time. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know what, that's a great example. I think about that often. Like, I'm like, wow, I literally went through the 12 steps to find Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, and one of the most beautiful parts of it is the humility at at the very bottom, when you hit rock bottom and, and then you have to admit to yourself, I was wrong. I was wrong about everything. And then you emerge out of that with a, with a beautiful grace and clarity. I love that you you said that. I, I, I was listening to uh, or read something recently from Jesse Myers um, from OnRamp. Uh, and he said something, he, he said, uh, I'll probably butcher the way he said it, but he said, uh, everyone buys Bitcoin when they're willing to admit they were wrong. Yeah, And I was like, yeah, because you have to set aside your ego and say either A, yes, I was wrong about Bitcoin. I thought Bitcoin was a scam or this or that. And two, I'm willing to now pay more than I'm, I'm realizing other people have, have before me. Like you have to just say, I was wrong. I'm going to get in. And, and, you know, we have that saying that everyone gets Bitcoin at the price they deserve, which is so right. true. Right. I don't know who yeah. said that, but that was a great quote. Yeah, and there is an acceptance, right? But part of that humility is that acceptance that okay, yeah, I'm I'm getting what I'm getting. This is this is right. what I deserve. <laughs> right. I didn't deserve it at five cents or ten cents or a dollar. I I don't, and I'm glad that those people got it when they did. But and maybe they didn't deserve to hang on to it past three dollars or four dollars, yeah. which we've seen over and over again. Yeah, and and you know this reminds me of a, actually a brilliant tweet that you had from a couple of days back in response to. Uh, some, I think, a financial analyst who kept confl conflating uh, Bitcoin and crypto. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole uh, tweet, but uh, uh, well, what was the? <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. Uh, it was. No, it's okay. It was Mark Yusko uh, from Morgan yeah. Creek Digital, um, who's a big VC guy, and he invested in like, you know, BlockFi and even Strike and. On paper, you would think, you know, he he's a Bitcoiner because he's in he's invested in lots of Bitcoin companies. But, um, yeah, he was on a podcast, um, and he kept he kept confusing crypto with Bitcoin and kept saying, "Well, Bitcoin is just crypto," and everyone thinks that. I was just at a Bitcoin meetup two two nights ago, and a crypto guy was there eating, and he kept arguing too. He's like, "Well, Bitcoin's crypto. Bitcoin is cryptographic." And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like if we're in a court or I'm in a Turkish prison and the only way I get out is to say, yes, Bitcoin is a quote unquote cryptocurrency. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, Satoshi never once in his white paper, not once did he say Bitcoin was a cryptocurrency. He didn't even use that word. And the reason we separated is because it's like, are humans animals? Absolutely. But, you know, you wouldn't call most humans animals and we wouldn't call, you know, processed food with you know industrial seed oils food it's digestible sure but is it really food and so unfortunately we've had to separate bitcoin from crypto because it's completely different right one is a, a commodity that's available to everyone and the other is formed by a company that they want to make money they can go bankrupt they can be sued 
um, they can rug you, they can print. It's really just the fiat world, you know, brought to the digital world. There's no difference, which, you know, Avi, you and I obviously know. Um, but I feel like rather than, I mean, not all the Bitcoin Bitcoiners believe or share this with me, but I believe rather than yelling at a lot of crypto people, I feel like they're one step closer to understanding Bitcoin than people that don't get anything. So I'm, you know, I actually like to go into crypto uh, spaces like on Twitter. I like talking to crypto people. I like following crypto people because they'll say something and I'm like, oh, you are so close to understanding Bitcoin because I, I was there. You're just not quite there. And that's where Mark Yusko is. I believe, you know, he technically totally understands Bitcoin. A lot of people get it. They, they can spout all the facts. And I'm like, oh, you totally get it. But then they don't. They just, they're just like, well, there could be something that could replace it. You know, someone might uh, uh, increase the supply. You know, it's like, what? No, it, it, you, then you don't get it. So this is probably getting too specific, but. Yeah, I mean, there was one specific uh, part of that tweet which uh, which sort of resonated with the previous conversation we were having, and I'm trying to remember that. Well, it's it's gone. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, sorry. Let's, that's all right. We'll, we won't uh, dwell on it for too long. But uh, so you know, uh, going back to story stories, you know, this is these are stories that potentially draw people in, uh, especially the mystery of Satoshi. I think that's a great one, right? Um, yes. But what keeps them there, right? It it, it piques their interest. They're like, oh yeah, this is right. a mystery. I want to know what's happening. But well, how do that's when I, I, so that's when I think it's helpful to have little analogies or little metaphors for really what Bitcoin is. You know, once we, once they're fascinated by the mystery, they're like, well, what really is Bitcoin? And, you know, some people go down the road and they start saying, well, it's code and every 10 minutes there's this block and blah, blah, blah. And this is all great and super important. But, I, but you know, it's like if I asked what, you know, email was, if I asked what my iPhone was, it's like if someone started technically telling me, you know, and those all have SHA-256 and relayers and whatnot, I, I would be like, well, I don't want to use email. I'm just going to send a letter. That's just so much easier, you know, or I'm just going to go to the library. You know, if you really explained how Google works and how it crawled and went through SEO and meta tags, it's like, it's a little confusing. So I think the stories that we use about it are important. And so I try to come up with little things to help explain um, Bitcoin, you know, uh, one like general way I, I try to tell people, for instance, that don't understand scarcity because we've never had digital scarcity ever in the world is I try to explain um, the Bitcoin network in terms of this big brick wall that's built up really, really, really high. And I say, look, imagine this brick wall. It's all cemented and there's 21 million bricks and they're all already there. No more new bricks are coming. No one can take them away. It's cemented. But like any great piece of art, there's this big red drape holding it, right? And But instead of lifting it real fast, ta-da, it's coming up slowly. And these people, miners, are slowly pulling up this red drape and revealing bricks, right? Right now we're revealing 900 a day. And it's like this gets cut in half every four years, so meaning it slows and it slows. But the red drape is is diaphanous. It's translucent. We can see the bricks underneath it. So you can see all 21 bricks. But you can only touch and have access to the ones that have been exposed. 
And we've already raised this drape up 97% of the wall. There's very little up there, right? But it's going to take, what, 135 years or so for it to get to that last part. And so when we talk in terms of Bitcoin and sending and receiving in wallets, I think this helps people because I'm like, if you work really hard and you contribute to society, you can transfer your fiat dollars, your money into one of these bricks. And so now you own a brick, you own a Bitcoin, but that Bitcoin never moves. That brick never moves. So all you're doing is since you have the key, the key is the treasure map that tells you where it is. You're just transferring that to someone else or they're telling you where their brick is. So all you do is you have these keys of access of where each brick is. But so do you see now how scarce it is because no one's adding bricks, no one's taking them away. And so if someone loses the key, the brick is still there. It's going to be there forever. But since no one can access it, your percentage of that network has now just increased that much more. So imagine if all of the value of the world starts to collapse into this brick, this brick wall starts to suck it all up and people aren't having to um, – gamble on real estate if they don't want to be a landlord or don't know how to work on houses if they do fantastic you know or or buy bonds that are losing proposition against inflation from day one or artwork or invest in wine barrels or all kinds of side hustles when you can just easily take this brick or a slice of the brick and you really just have this key to it so I have like, we can go on and on if you want, but I have tons of little stories like that that I think help people first understand it. And then now you can go learn about what it really is, but it just helps um, people picture it. That is a great uh, metaphor or analogy, Terrence. I, I haven't heard that one before. I love it. It's uh, oh, cool. it's your own, presumably, right? You've, you've come up yeah. with that. Yeah. And, it, and the reason why is because friends and family and people would just keep asking the same question. Like, well, why can't they just make more? Why can't you just add more? You know, and we think so because I write a treatment on a Word doc and I send it to you. And now it's on my computer. It's now on your computer. You can forward it to 10 of your friends and they have it. But I did the proof of work. I proved that I wrote it, yet you didn't have to do any work and you just sent it to your 10 friends. They didn't do any work and now they just have it. And that's what we think of when we think of, of the digital world. And so obviously Satoshi solved this with this brick wall. You know, another story that I like to use um, is I use a, a pizza because um, I know us Bitcoiners like pizza. But at least here in the Western world, it's like people don't really understand inflation. They, they, they say they understand it and maybe intellectually they're like, oh, yeah, prices are going up. But it's like – but they don't feel it, right, because they get a $10 drink somewhere and then two weeks later it's $12. They're like, ah, two bucks extra, right? We know that's 20%. That's huge, but they don't really feel it. So I try to explain inflation in a completely different way. Since the government can print money and, it, and it's costless uh, – it makes more sense if you think of it in terms of goods and services. So picture a pizza, and this pizza represents the entire GDP. It represents all the goods and services of the world. This is our world. This is everything that we produce. Avi, you've got one slice of this 10-slice pizza, so you own 10% of the network. You have 10% of the world. That's You're huge. You're a whale. I have one piece, and so I own 10%. You, Avi, you say, hey – uh, Terrence, I know you build swimming pools. I'd like to have you build me a swimming pool. And 
I'm saying, great. So me thinking about all the labor, all the excavation, my employees, everything, my insurance, everything that I have to go through, I want, uh, I want your slice. I want one slice worth. I know the calories and the goods, the pineapple, the cheese. I know everything that's on that will equate to what I need, right, for what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, the government, say the government wants to print money and they want to inflate, which they do and they will continue to do. They come in. They're not putting – they're not adding another pizza, and this is what people think. Oh, they're just adding more pizza. The government comes in, and they re-slice this pizza. So now instead of a 10-slice pizza, they've come through every line, and now there's 20 slices. So now you say to me, now I'm coming over to build your swimming pool, and you obviously say, great, here's my one slice. And I'm like, this is half of what we agreed to. You're like, but it's one slice. I only own one slice because you see the government cut out half of your – of your content. And so I say, okay, well, you know what, based on the amount of calories that I was counting on, I now need two slices. And so there's inflation. The swimming pool is costing you now two pizzas instead of one pizza because the government doesn't, our, our goods and services are fixed. They're finite. And since the government isn't making anything new because they're just printing money, that's really all they're doing is they're re-slicing the pizza in within that economy. And so sometimes when I tell that, and obviously some, a lot of times to kids and whatnot, it helps them understand inflation. Like, oh, that's why this costs five dollars. Now it costs ten dollars because we just we've been resliced. Yeah. Well, and everyone loves pizza, right? So it's it. I think that yeah. it'll land well. Yeah. I don't know about pineapple. Yeah. I caught you saying pineapple. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't want pineapple on yours. Oh. <laughs> I'm I'm from New York, Terrence. Uh, we're very strict mm. about pizza here. Uh, yeah, raised pizza, Sal's pizza. Yeah. So go, going back to so that that was a great another great um, analogy right there and, and I think you're right right I mean you have the broad overarching story and that draws people in especially if it's a mystery and or something aspirational a hero's journey something like that and then you have very very relatable analogies that help them stay yes um, that makes sense now go, going back to the story themes right. It, uh, maybe we'll take a step back to Hollywood. Okay. Do you find that the the stories with aspirational themes, with hopeful themes, tend to have uh, more of an appeal than stories with with uh, well, I guess hopeless themes, right? Or or more themes that tend to despair. Uh, because the, the, you could still follow a hero's journey, but maybe. Like you could you could go the Othello route, Hamlet or Othello route, mm -hmm. right? Or you could you could have a happy ending route. Which which I mean, and these are all popular story themes, right? Well, which yeah. one, uh, from your experience, tends to resonate more with the audience? I mean, from my experience, you know, definitely optimism or ending in optimism rather than you know ending in tragedy. Um, and in fact, you know, movies. Um, you know, we test movies all the time. We do market tests, we do polls, we do all kinds of things. And you can have a tragedy film, and you've probably seen this many times where there's sort of been a tragedy, but then right before the credits, there's this scene of hope and or, or something comedic happens. And that's largely the producers or the studio executives saying, hey, people want to walk out on a happy note. Because when you walk out on a happy note, you tend to tell other people about it, you tend to tell them to go see it. It's It's... I get it from an art perspective, but it's really tough walking out of a, mo out of a movie just like, ugh, you know, just pure death and dread. 
um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's why also, you know, good or bad, it's why lighter movies tend to do better, you know, whether it's a comedy or a thriller or a heist movie or, um, there can be, uh, sort of this, uh, you can imagine yourself in this world that you would never, ever normally be in, but you're in the comfort of your own, you know, home. Um, lots of times people that have tragedy or, or, I mean, the reality is that lots of people that go to the movies are escaping something that's sort of tragic in their own lives. Um, so that's, I think that's why it's, it's harder for those to resonate. So there's a reason I asked this, right? So again, we'll bring this back to Bitcoin, uh, which is, do you feel there are aspirational stories in Bitcoin or, or do you see the stories as they stand today are more about uh, painting a, a bleak picture of the current system, right? This, this uh, system of despair and, and hopelessness. No, that's a that's a really good point because they're because both are going on. Um, I mean, I think it's easy to highlight what's going on, especially now, right? When we're in two wars and at an all time high inflation and all time high debt, so it's very it's an easy place to go. But you you bring up a really good point, you know, um, highlighting hope for the future, highlighting what the world could be when um, people can honor their time and their their past contribution to society in a in a better way um, is something that we can work on it's it's harder i think for people to to grasp that it's so much easier to just say you know look you have a dirty window and your window is getting dirtier every day and you don't even realize that um it you know so that's more bleak rather than to say hey i have a window that's not going to get dirty and in fact it's cleaner and you'll be able to see even better outside your house that's tougher to do but you know like so for instance in hollywood like th there's a ton of environmentalists and a ton of you know people that uh uh are against you know global warming and you know climate change and all of that and it's like so for those people I don't go down the bleak road. I show them a world of hope with what Bitcoin mining can do and how how uh, productive it is and how effective it is at actually mitigating methane and reducing emissions. And, you know, a lot of them are just misinformed. And so I – trying to go into story, I say picture a donut shop. I say this donut shop is is – Every landfill, every farm, every agricultural company, every oil company, everybody out there that is emitting emissions, us Bitcoiners come to the donut shop and we say, hey, we, we don't want to take any energy away from anybody. We don't need anybody to produce any new energy. In fact, we use less than 0.1% of the entire global energy. We're going to come to you at the end of the day. All those donuts that fell on the floor the broken ones, the crumbled ones, the ones someone spit on, whatever, we'll take them because you're just going to throw it away. That energy, those donuts, you're just throwing away. We'll take them. We'll eat them all up. We're the raccoons of energy, and we'll feed off of that. And by the way, since this is a new donut shop, when you finally start getting all the hipsters lining up around the block, we'll back off and we'll go to the next donut shop that's trying to open. You let you have the highest paying customers. We'll move on. And so I just try to explain to people in Hollywood that, you know, 
Bitcoin mining, all we do is all we all we can afford is wasted and stranded and discarded and orphaned energy that and that we don't emit a single emission, not none. I mean, we are literally we are literally a space heater, but that also happens to just secure and offer the best monetary system we've ever had. And, you, you know, we're a hairdryer and which just emits heat which itself is a source of energy, which itself is a good that we can benefit from. Um, so I feel like that's more of an, on an optimistic level, um, sh showing them hope and, and, and how much it does. And then when you look at the facts, we don't have to get into those now, of course, but you can't deny them, you know? And I think that's why the narrative is changing a lot. We're hearing way less about how, you know, Bitcoin mining is scorching the earth and eating up all the energy and, you know, I think we were told that back in, I think, I think we were told that by 2017, the Bitcoin mining would eat up all the world's energy, you know, and we're still less than 0.1%. And of that 0.1%, 60% of it is renewable in the first place. So uh, I can get a little on my high horse there with energy and mining because it's, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible technology. And I don't know if Satoshi ever actually knew what it was going to, I, I wonder if that's just our own discovery. I don't know if he realized that it was going to eat up so much methane. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess we'll never know. Although there, yeah. it is interesting. Uh, there's a tweet from Hal Finney from a long time ago where he, I, he, he wasn't talking about uh, Bitcoin as mitigating methane em emissions, but I think he recognized the energy, energy usage uh, way back. I mean, we're talking about almost 13 years ago at this point. So that was somewhat uh, prescient, even even for someone like Hal Finney. But I just want to circle back mm. to the point about miners and and the, uh, being raccoons. Um, uh, I had a conversation. My my first episode on on this podcast was with Shooter, right, a filmmaker. I think you might be you might be familiar with him. Yes, and he was he was telling this uh, a very similar and incredible story of uh, in his travels. Uh, when he was in Kenya, he was he visited a rural community where this company, mining company called Gridless, helps small power plants bootstrap themselves. So th these power plants would have no reason to exist, meaning they, there's just not enough demand for the power, right? So they wouldn't even waste the money um, in investing there. But because of Gridless, they're able to bootstrap themselves. And boom, that's when the magic happens. Not the Bitcoin mining that Gridless is benefiting from. That's just like a cherry on top. What's really happening is these rural agricultural communities, very, very poor communities uh, in Kenya who never had electricity suddenly have electricity. Their productivity has gone up. It's children can do their homework at night because now they have lights on, right? Food can be refrigerated. Farmers... Uh, their productivity has gone up 10x because uh, of electricity. So it's it's remarkable what Bitcoin mining is able to enable. Yeah, people can flourish. That's just a whole other aspect where people don't realize that Bitcoin mining brings energy to people that otherwise don't have it. Because most, you know, to build out a grid, it's I think the figures are it's about two million bucks per mile. So how are you going to bring something a hundred miles to people at that cost? And that sometimes takes like ten to fifteen years for VCs to even get a return if they can get a return. But with Bitcoin miners, we plop them down anywhere under a waterfall, near a stream, you know, geothermal plugged into the steam underground and and instant energy. Yeah. So on a related topic, Terrence, um, and maybe the last topic for our conversation here, 
you you brought up VCs and return on investment on something Bitcoin related, right? In this case, you're talking specifically about mining, but if you broaden that out into creating content, right, with a view of shaping a culture and drawing in adoption uh, through those stories, right? How how does one go about? I mean, you could be an incredible storyteller, and you have you, ha- you have this magical story to tell uh, about Bitcoin, or thematically related to Bitcoin, you know, freedom technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, sound money, society flourishing, and so on and so forth, right? How do you convince an investor to uh, invest in some, uh, a project like this, where it's unclear what the return, even if it's an amazing story, it's unclear what the return is going to be? It's a good question. So, so, you know, on one hand, there's, you know, there's the philanthropic level, right, where some Bitcoiners have benefited so much, and they also just want to educate and get the word out there, Um that you have to just get a sponsor, like like many things and many um, advocates of of causes and movements. Um, that's usually the place you start. Um, otherwise, you sort of just have to have a business model, right? And you're like, okay, so you know, we're going to make this educational content, or we're going to make this movie about Bitcoin. It's like, you know, how how can we show a return? Well, so far, if you're just sticking within the Bitcoin community, we know that's a very small audience. And since it's also mostly um, people that already know a lot of the stuff that we're saying, it's like you have to go beyond that. So that's why I really think the struggle, the goal, and it's not an easy goal, is is to go beyond Bitcoin, you know, is to – it's almost like a um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like a sort of this unconscious well, I don't want to say programming. That sounds bad. That does make us sound like a cult. But you know, this sort of unconscious um, insertion of these principles and properties of Bitcoin, Inception. without mentioning Bitcoin, Inception. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, Inception. <laughs> yes, there's a whole movie about that. Yes. Um, I, I I feel like that's what it is, and it's like that's not an easy task because then you open up the investor pool to everybody that doesn't even have to know about Bitcoin. They just see it for what it is, which is a, a huge piece of entertainment. Um, otherwise, within the Bitcoin world, which I love too, you know, because that that will grow. Let's be honest. The Bitcoin world is going to grow. Every bull market, we continue to grow more. And as you know, we build during the bear. And so as we're sort of in a bear, maybe coming out of a bear, going into bull, it's a good time to continue to build. And a lot of the people that have benefited from Bitcoin are happy to invest. I'll put invest in quotes because I don't know if there is an immediate return, but maybe there's a return in that the more people that join the network, the more people buy, the more that you know their value becomes worth. Um, that's kind of where I would start. You know, you, you look at El Salvador and it's like what they're doing as a country and they have these um, volcano bonds, right? So they're, they have these bonds where they're raising money, just like all bonds do. They're just, they're just loans, but they're raising them also based on a return coming from Bitcoin. So that's kind of a model that could also be used where like, say we have a project within Bitcoin and we want to raise money. Well, we could say, you know, half of this money is going to be held over here in Bitcoin. So even if the project goes bad, whatever, based on Bitcoin's accretion level, you might just get all your money back just from Bitcoin alone. But now we get to take half of this so we can have the nuts and bolts of our project. And 
I think about that a lot because that seems to be something where it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe it is worth investing in this project. I like this. I like what they're doing. But hey, half of it's going into Bitcoin anyways. That will be an interesting one to crack, Terence, which is how yeah. do you tie content creation to Bitcoin mining? Because, I mean, the mining revenue, yeah, it's a, if, in a vacuum, that's deterministic, right? If you know you're going to have X percent of the hash rate, uh, then you'll get X percent of the supply over, over a long enough period of time, yeah. right? Um, I and I wasn't even referring yeah. to mining in that sense. I just meant just the asset. You know, so like, say we, you know, needed a hundred thousand dollars for a project, we'd get the hundred thousand and we'd say, look, 50,000 of it is actually just going to sit in Bitcoin. We're going to take the other 50,000 to make our project, but we could have these escalators where as Bitcoin's price goes up, we're allowed to slice off some of that 50,000 where they still have the value of 50,000. So say that 50,000 in Bitcoin becomes 75, we can now take 25 of that and put towards our project. Yeah. So we're saying we are banking, which is why I think it's nice to do this when there's a bull, because, yes. yeah, um, that's it, it, would, yeah, it wouldn't quite work in a bear market, I think. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, you would definitely have to, that's in that case, it'd be very philanthropic. Um, but I think that's a business model that can work. I mean, El Salvador is doing it at a, at, a, at a nation level with their Bitcoin bonds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I well, think uh, they become green at, at around 40 42, 43,000, which we're not far from, and they're going to be made whole. So, yeah, that's remarkable. Certainly rooting for, for their success there. But one last thing, Terrence, on the philanthropic topic, right? So, I mean, you're talking about a low time preference individual, right? Who's willing to, who's not looking for that short term return on investment as a venture capitalist would, for instance, but they're willing to do this for the culture, right? Over a five, 10 year period, almost like, in in Florence of five six hundred years ago a thousand years ago, um, like the patrons right of of the arts, are there such people out there? Well, first of all, I mean, it, you know, if you if you subscribe to Bitcoin's cycles, um, which I do, just because looking at the data, I don't think people necessarily need to wait that long. Um, but let's say it is five, six years, which still is not that bad. Um, I think there's a way to do it where um, – I think people will – I think there's a way to do it where based on the levels that Bitcoin reaches, they get their money back no matter what just because of the price of Bitcoin. Like that to me would be sort of the quote-unquote insurance for them. But – they also see that like, hey, we need money to make good content to help educate others. And the more that others come in, the more that it benefits the network. Um, I mean, it's always, it's always a challenge when, I mean, like this is the newest asset class we've ever had. We haven't had a, a new asset class in right over 200 years or whatever. And, and it's so niche at the moment that you really have to get creative in how a VC can get their money back because there isn't really a proven way. There isn't a proven way to make money in Bitcoin outside of mining and the accretion of the asset, right? Unless I'm missing something, uh, I don't know how else you're really making money. Well, I guess certain companies that want to help with collaborative custody um, help with wallets, 
you know, the swans and the unchained and those places, they're clearly making money um, with high net worth individuals and whatnot. But well, that's more on the services side, presumably. As that's more on to... the services side, right? So it's yeah. kind of like, you know, are we providing a service? I guess we are, but it's in an education. Um, but it's not like the thing is with ed- educational material or or even entertainment. Education disguises entertainment. You can't, you know, how much are people going to pay? Like, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really want to pay for stuff to learn about Bitcoin. So someone, someone has to. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm thinking in real time, right on this podcast. I don't no, know. No, no, not at all. This, uh, this is great, though. This is the point, right? We're, yeah. we're coming up with a story in real time, uh, but people pay. Uh, for movie tickets, right? To watch a movie. Yes. Yeah, people will pay for movie tickets. People will subscribe for something, and maybe there needs to be a business model for that. Uh, it's just tough because people within Bitcoin, you know, I guess there's two things going on. On one hand, right, and 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 some business people would say, hey, this is the smart thing to do. Just focus on your niche and just hit them hard, right? So it's like, okay, great. We know who the Bitcoiners are. We're going to make content just for them. They they still want content. They want to be entertained and they want their values to be reinforced. Like that, I believe that you can absolutely fund and go to town. But it's also it's also small. It's like if you want to go bigger outside of that, though, then you have to just make something that's either not for them or you have to just get creative with the financing. Um it, yeah, I mean, there, it isn't easy because it's almost like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know why I keep saying vacuum cleaners, but, you know, if we were in the vacuum cleaner business, like, how are we, how are we going to make money? Like, do, do vacuum cleaner people need to see another vacuum cleaner video? How do we get the people outside the vacuum cleaner industry to watch those? How do we prove to them that their house is dirty and they need a vacuum cleaner? Um, well, it I don't is know that stories. there's an answer. Yeah. I think it is through stories eventually, right? We're not there yet. Yeah. We don't have the stories yet, but maybe with right. your three ventures, uh, that'll start drawing more people in. Maybe they'll Yeah, I hope. Stories. There's so many great storytellers out there. And I keep, you know, I just talked to one yesterday and I just, you keep running into these people. And I think they're all thinking the same thing as you and I are like, you know, here's these stories, here's these ideas. How do we get them out there? You know, I mean, look, if, if, if money weren't an issue, there, there should be some kind of Bitcoin network or Bitcoin studio, right? Like where all these people with ideas could go pitch, it could get funded, and it could get out there. But then on the other hand, you're like, okay, so what is out there? Who is this going to? Um, and, how, and how do we get a return on our money? Or if we don't, it's some kind of nonprofit. It's like a philanthropic educational nonprofit, um, which is a way to go. I don't know. I Maybe I'm too optimistic, but I feel like there's someone or some ones out there. I mean, we know there are whales out there that have money and they haven't even come forward yet. They're just still sitting in mom's basement somewhere. Um, and it would be nothing to them, but it would meet, be so meaningful to so many people. If you're a whale sitting in your mom's basement and you're listening to this, <laughs> please reach out. Please reach out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know they're out there. I mean, I, I you just know it. Um, what are they? What are they going to do with all that money? <laughs> all right, Terrence. On that note, uh, and and hopefully with uh, that was a successful. That's going to be a successful call to action. 
Uh, yes. <laughs> that we just did. Um, uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, I, I really enjoyed this conversation, uh, going through all the different tr story tropes and and then you know putting concrete examples on some of them, especially in the context of Bitcoin. Um, so uh, if people want to find you, Terrence, what's the best way to follow you on Twitter or they, I'll let you, I'll let you say what the best way is. Yeah, no, just Twitter. Um, I'm just proof of money, um, which is the name of my book. So it's easy to find me. And we've got to get you on Nostra, uh, one of these days, Terrence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you'll laugh, but the, the, you know, the reason I'm not a Nostra is because and you'd correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like it's mostly Bitcoiners, which is great, but I'm trying to get the traditional finance and legacy finance and real estate bros. And I don't know, I'm crypto people. I'm, I'm trying to find all the people that I don't think are there yet. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're right. It's mostly Bitcoiners. And there, there are some non-Bitcoiners who come in. I'm there because it's a fun place. It's a fun and happy place. <laughs> and I, I want to have fun. And I want to be happy. So that's, that's why I'm there. Copy that. That makes yeah. sense. That that does sound good. <laughs> All right, Terrence. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Okay, Avi. Thank you.